Hello and welcome back to the Slice of Pie podcast where the pie stands for the psychologically informed environment and the mission is to further our understanding of what that looks like across environments, domains, workplaces, organisations, teams and any other group where well-being and performance are primary issues. This week's guest has got a very impressive list of experiences across many environments, both as an athlete and a sports psychology consultant. Jenna Wolven played national level and junior international level hockey before transitioning into sports marketing and then into her now career of sport and exercise psychology. She then went to work for sports and management consultancy Lane 4, where she worked with various businesses and sport organisations, including a year where she was embedded into the Football Association and based at St George's Park. She's now an independent consultant and passionate about helping people to realise their potential, achieve their goals and live more fulfilled lives. In this conversation, we talk about consulting with sporting or business teams, being embedded in organisations and how to help bring about meaningful engagement with sport or work. In every conversation, it's great to hear the experiences of those that have worked in different parts of the high performance world. And it's very interesting to get a perspective from the world of management consultancy and sports psychology consultancy. Before we jump into the conversation, just a thank you again to those of you tuning in again to Slice of Pie. And if you have time to leave a review of the podcast on Apple or iTunes, it would be hugely appreciated and help the show reach more people interested in this topic. Just the full-time reflection for this episode, so we'll go for about 40 minutes and then pause at the end to discuss some of the key themes. So without further ado, let's get into the conversation with Jenna Wolven. Jenna, how are we? I'm not too, doing too bad, thanks Pete. Yeah, not too bad. How about yourself? Yeah, good, thanks. How are you navigating 2020, this bizarre year that is 2020? Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely been an interesting one. I think I've sort of had probably like different phases. Um, I was on furlough for quite a bit at the start. So that was kind of one phase and then um, actually left my job. So that was another phase. And now I'm starting some some new exciting projects. So sort of in, in phase three, um, there's definitely been some ups and downs. But on the whole, I'm pretty optimistic and excited for, for the future. Oh, wow. OK, so you are literally the the archetype of the person within 2020 where it ha- it has caused a lot of change uh, and that has opened up new new avenues for you yeah exactly exactly and i think i've had to definitely had to remind myself at times um you know of the the old once one door closes another one opens kind of thing because sometimes when you're in, in it can feel quite overwhelming but um yeah i think looking forward to the future um is, is always a good thing it's interesting that I mean we I think we talked briefly before about as applied psychologists or in my case as an applied trainee um, psychologist you're often either kind of giving advice or, or helping people to see or understand uh, thoughts or behaviors or, or ideas that we kind of have a, a an evidence base for or, mm. or a literature base for you mentioned there around reminding yourself as one door closes another door opens do you feel like reminding yourself is enough or do you kind of, do you have to kind of click out of thinking mode into actually doing mode? Yeah, it's a good question. I think 
and actually the, the entire stage two process definitely helped me with applying some some psychological skills to myself I think I've got a lot better at, at a reminder kind of being that flick for me so you know ch- changing mm. from oh my goodness this is a nightmare what am I going to do to hey look this is this is the start of something new um you know what what could you make from it so yeah so I think I have got a bit better but but also like using other people for sure is, is definitely one of my main strategies of, of of dealing and coping with things just talking it through with others to help me get that that sense of perspective mm, that's interesting so using it as a switch to go okay right that's my little reminder switch what am I doing today or to to help or to talk with others yeah both of those things I suppose allows you to get out of your own head you'll you'll stop if Jenna's not speaking to Jenna too much (laughs) anymore it's it's you've moved on you've talked to someone else or you're doing something yeah definitely definitely and I think it's not it's not about um you know telling myself I shouldn't be having those thoughts or or trying to stop anything it's just getting a different sense of perspective really so I think it's very natural to have all the kinds of negative and catastrophic thoughts that we have and then it's just about okay well I could choose to spend my day worrying about that or I could also choose to um take a more positive outlook on the day so yeah I think a bit of a switch is probably a good way of thinking about it yeah it's nice I like that bit about not telling yourself I shouldn't be having these thoughts Hmm. and um you know it's funny working with athletes um so often you find athletes who you know when they list down all of their kind of their thoughts and beliefs on paper looks super rational looks looks super useful looks super helpful but then it's it it feels like sometimes that their problem is kind of tormenting themselves with catching themselves thinking Mm. in a way that they don't want to and it's actually the it's actually how to deal with that opposed to the kind of the belief side of things yeah for sure totally agree and I think yeah often it's not actually the thoughts themselves that are necessarily the problem it's kind of our reaction to those thoughts so Mm. feeling nervous before a race or thinking what if I lose is kind of part of it it's part of competing it's part of being yeah being part part of a high level sport but it's how we respond to that and if we take that as a complete negative and and become tense and and frustrated as a result that's going to then have a worse effect than if we go oh there we go there's that thought popping up again um and just kind of moving on yeah nice yeah it's 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 very interesting how we can work with others on this type of stuff and find just how how applicable it is to ourselves and I suppose going back to the context of 2020 when you have a, a big seismic change like that come into society and on a personal level it's, it's useful to have those those tools and those resources to draw upon yeah yeah definitely and knowing like knowing what's difficult or what's challenging about it helps you to work with clients on it as well so yeah I think it's definitely a good point right so if we take a step back then from 2020 and rewind the clock how have you got to this point then in in your career where did it all start for you in in sports psychology and, and sport in in general and and how do we get to this point yeah so a sort of whistle stop tour i guess of, of the last 10 years or so for me i for me it started in in sport so i played hockey did some junior international stuff and was lucky enough to go and play abroad mm. i did a did a season out in germany a season out in australia and was was loving it and was having having a great time but kind of wanted to <laughs> to start real life I guess and, and and I've always wanted a career and I thought that was important to me so I studied did an undergraduate in psychology and actually whilst I was was out working in Germany um I was I got sort of an internship with a sports marketing company at the time thinking oh this could be quite interesting and, and I and it was during that that I realized 
I loved marketing and I, I love the office environment and everything I learned, but I definitely realized that I wanted to help people that mm. kind of just reinforced for me the the kind of route for me was going to be psychology and helping people in some way. So I then did a master's in sports psychology, I guess, combining my two biggest passions of sport and psychology, which for me just seemed perfect. Yeah, then after that, I was I was facing a, a decision around stage two and how do I actually get qualified? And I think anyone going through that process knows how challenging it is. And at that point, I sort of came across Lane 4, mm-hmm. um, which is a management consultancy, but has kind of heritage in elite sport. So essentially taking uh, a lot of the lessons from sport and high performance into business environments. And so again, for me, I just thought, wow, what, what a great company, what a great opportunity. So I was lucky enough to get a job there. And I guess that then added in a final component. So I, I combined sports, psychology and business um, mm. and was there for five years, learned an unbelievable amount. Some of the people who worked there were, were amazing. And uh, yeah, some of my colleagues are, you know, I, I've learned so much from them. That actually came to an end a couple of months ago. So I've just left lane four, but I suppose one of the biggest experiences I had whilst at lane four was I got, I got a secondment out to the football association. All right. Um, so I was embedded within the FA for a year, essentially helping to develop a high performance culture within, within some of the England teams. And when you say embedded, what does embedded look like? Yeah. So I, I, I basically lived at St. George's park. All right. Okay. Um, a year and went away on camp so we had a pretty much a camp a month um, which may have lasted one or two weeks so I was either traveling with the team or or at St George's Park so yeah embedded kind of just fully involved you feel like one of them basically even though I was still at lane four I was I was very much part of the FA team mm. so it's about five of us at the time our, our department was called people and teams um and yeah it was it was quite a broad remit developing a high performance culture and, and we all kind of went about it in different ways but mm-hmm. essentially working with the head coach the multidisciplinary team so all the staff as well as the players to just yeah and enhance some of the ways that they worked and and thought and approached the game so i mean i could i could go on and on about that and i'm sure we'll, we'll dig back back into it later but that was sort of one of the one of the linchpins of, of my time at lane four and I was going through my stage two process at that point so yeah clocked up a fair a fair amount of hours um for that which was which was great yeah um and so yeah now I've just shifted from employed at lane four to self-employed I I've got chartered just at the end of last year so congratulations thank you yeah it's a, it was a good feeling that's for sure so yeah now now just sort of tackling the self-employed world and and finding bits of work here and there and everywhere getting getting involved in a few really exciting projects which are sort of all in the early stages at this point but um, I'm excited to see where where they turn out uh, so yeah that's sort of like a very brief I guess from playing sport myself into a bit of a business environment and then now you know going self-employed and, and hitting the ground running myself really that was a good whistle stop tour <laughs> there must be a bit of your uh, marketing experience and marketing skills in there being able to distill such a a long journey into a, a, a small package. Um, uh, I don't know. I probably missed that quite a lot, but yeah, in essence, that, that was it. <laughs> uh, yeah, it'd be lovely to to dig into the the FA experience. Sounds super interesting. But first, I'd just like to talk about, you, you said at Lane 4, using lessons from high-performance sport and taking that into the business sector. I think that's super interesting. We've had a few people on the podcast who, who've worked in this this world how did you find taking lessons from 
high performance sport and apply it into the business environment. And let's start with what were the, the things that you felt that businesses really engaged with? What were the, the things that you, you kind of, you took in or, or did that you felt their, their eyes would really light up? Yeah, good question. I think just an answer to sort of part one of your question, how did I find it? I think people generally are really interested in high performing environments. Um, mm. And, you know, I was always really passionate about delivering the workshops because, you know, say you're with, with a group for a day, if there was one or two things that just changed someone's mindset or made someone think of it differently or mm. inspired someone to go away and do something, um, you know, that was super powerful. And I think a lot of the stories and lessons from sport and from high performing environments help them to do that mm. more so than, um, you know, if I was in their world and I was helping them through it, I think coming from a different world is, is, was quite interesting to people. Mm. And I think some of the main things, it's, it's, yeah, again, it's quite hard to pick down, but I, I suppose for me, resilience was a, was a massive one. You know, it's particularly in the last five years, it's become a huge topic and achieving that work-life balance, but also, you know, managing difficult people, um, you know, all the sorts of challenges that you face in the workplace. I think there's a, a you know, a lot of stuff from, from the sporting world that, mm. that's relevant to that. I did quite a bit of work around high-performing teams. So what makes a team not just good but great and make you know how do you make that shift from a well-functioning team to a high-performing team mm. and yeah worked with quite a few intact teams to help them to do that and I suppose the last one that I think was particularly beneficial was around like a coaching culture typically in a in a work environment you are good at your job and you get promoted into a role that perhaps requires less time for you to do the do and more time for you to manage a team or manage other people mm. um, and actually helping people to just not just tell but help people understand how to learn and grow themselves and create an environment where people are open and free and willing to learn I think was was another massive one for me. Mm. That's almost like an evergreen challenge in not just businesses but in almost all organizations isn't it the this point in a kind of an employee's career trajectory where they've got really good at doing something to the point where they're then asked to help others do it. Mm. Um, and they've spent all of their career or most of their career developing the, the doing bit, but haven't necessarily developed the skills to help others do it, right? Yeah, that's exactly it. In fact, you've articulated it much better than I just did. So yeah, yeah, spot on. So what, what do you think are some of the helpful, the helpful tidbits or the helpful things for people in, those, in that position to, to work on? Is it about just kind of planning out what skills they need to have? Is it about reading books? Is it about having a, a slightly different perspective on how to develop others? What do you think some of the key things are that came up when you did that? Yeah, that is a good question. Um, I think the first one I'd start with was self-awareness. Um, mm. As a as you know, an individual contributor, if you like, someone who just does does your job, you know, you can you can be told what to do, or you can you know decide your own work. But essentially, you sort of get on with it. When when you're then leading or managing others, you just have to be really aware of the impact that you're having on them. Mm. Um, so I think starting at that place and starting with what's your style, what's your personality, how. Do, how you know what's the what's the personality of the people that you're managing and how are you working together and ultimately i think the big question is yeah what's the impact that you're having on them um, mm. and just helping people to understand that was was a huge part of it 
I don't want to use like business speak, but um, empowering. <laughs> business speak. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, spiel or, or whatever, <laughs> yeah. whatever it is. But um, I think empowering others and helping people to take responsibility for themselves is, is another massive one. Mm-hmm. You know, you can create a culture where people are reliant on you. And then if you go on holiday or you're busy, it becomes really tricky. Mm. Or you can create a culture where people take responsibility for themselves and step up to the plate and then draw on you when they need to. And it's a very different way of working. It's really noticeable, the organisations that we go into and you kind of see how different people operate. So I think those two are, are, are big ones. And then just going back to, again, the kind of coaching culture of helping people to think for themselves um, and make those decisions themselves rather than be, wait to be told what to do. Yeah. I think that, that, that second one obviously has huge value for both parties, isn't it? Of course, you're empowering people around you to make decisions. And, you know, I suppose there's some easy parallels to draw within sport in terms of uh, leadership teams within rugby teams, for example, the All Blacks obviously very famously use kind of leadership teams to to distribute decision making. Mm. Um, And that's good for those people who are drawn into that process but it's also good for you right because you're actually taking um you're taking a load off your plate you're not carrying everything on your own shoulders your own shoulders yeah yeah exactly and sometimes it is quite hard to do as a leader or or a coach it's quite hard to give up that power or responsibility to someone who you perhaps see less experienced or or less capable but um in the end exactly it develops um it develops both sides in the long run yeah, very interesting. So one other thing that you mentioned there was um, this idea that if one or two things from a workshop help to inspire people and they, they come away from that, that that is seen as a, a, a success. I suppose that that makes me think, is, is there something key in that world which is about setting expectations? So setting the expectation that, yes, we're going to do half a day or a day's workshop and we're coming from another world which is sport and we're never going to understand your business as well as you do but we're going to bring this inspiration in and if there's one or two things you can take away that would be amazing um so do you find kind of setting that that expectation the kind of the process of doing it is as important as the content that you're bringing in yeah definitely um and i would spend let's say i was with a group for a day i would spend at least half an hour if not up to an hour in the morning contracting around okay what's this day all about what do you want from it what's going to be most beneficial for you how do we want to operate as a group um what do you need from me what do you need from others so just having those types of conversations because i think getting that initial buy-in at the start is key to learning and also just setting the expectation that I'm not just going to stand here and, and talk at you all day and tell you what I think is, 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 you know, is important or is the right answer. I really want you to do that thinking yourself. So right from the start, getting them to yeah, buy in by um, doing their own thinking was, was a massive part of it. And I think just on expectations, it also made me think I had to set my own expectations. So definitely early on, I wanted everyone to be fully engaged all the time. And I'd be so disappointed going away from a day mm. if there was someone or a group of people who I didn't think had got much from it. Um, mm. I think people come into that environment in, in different mindsets and, and ready to learn in different ways. And, you know, I couldn't control that. And so I definitely yeah. had to let go of some of that high expectation of everyone has to think it's all brilliant and just shift to if most of the group take one or two things away, that's a massive success. 
but recognizing that some people just won't be ready to learn or won't be in that in that right mindset and you know whilst I'll do my very best to convince them and sometimes it did happen and and that was almost the the most rewarding parts of the day so when someone came in in the morning and and you could tell thought that it was going to be a rubbish day and by the end had had kind of turned around and and was fully engaged in it but yeah other times that they wouldn't and, and that was just something I had to had to deal with I guess yeah it sounds like you're you're trying to not fall into the the trap of doing too much mind reading there <laughs> because someone on their phone in the morning session you know your your threat seeking brain might be telling yourself oh god they're they're not liking it but equally they might be trying to push forward their i don't know exchange on their house um or yeah. you know they might have the teacher from school ringing about daughter number two um <laughs> so it's you know it's I, I suppose it's it's about not kind of falling into that that trap of, of kind of mind reading when when you see mm-hmm. people disengage yeah that is a really good point and also there were times when I'd, I'd get it wrong so I'd think that someone was disengaged and then at the end of the day they'd be the one that came up and said oh thanks so much I got this from you I got this from you and I'd think wow I, I wasn't expecting that so yeah I think definitely um uh, you know not necessarily judging a book from its cover yeah so you mentioned you're you're now in a, a stage where you're going you've gone from kind of employed to self-employed and you've you've got a number of projects that you're working on is that something that you want to kind of keep your hand in having had that experience within the the private sector or the business sector working on high performance teams are you keen to keep working in that area or are you looking at doubling down in in sport what's the balance going to look like yeah so i'm i'm lucky enough in that i've i can do some associate work with lane force so i can still be involved and you know, i've got some existing relationships with clients which i'll probably continue mm. um through lane four but yeah i think i was you know going through the stage process stage two process definitely confirmed my my passion for sports psychology and that's the area that i would want to spend most of my time so i think um yeah that's definitely going to become the main focus over the coming months and years great well talking of sport let's let's use that as a, a segue back into your experience that year at the uh, the fa so you're embedded living at mm-hmm. living at st george's park uh, fully involved there's five of you uh, working in the people and teams team high performance mm-hmm. culture remit multidisciplinary team working with staff and players what are the kind of defining stories or the defining memories from that year that would be worth reflecting on so i guess um the work that I did split across both players and staff um, mm-hmm. and um, you know whilst it was all integrated it's probably worth me separating out at this point so I went to a European cup with one of the junior teams and I think one of the most powerful pieces of work we did with them was connecting them all into a into a why into a purpose mm-hmm. into what they're there for and what to, what they wanted to get from it I think it's it's quite a simple piece of work. It doesn't necessarily need to take a massive amount of time, but doing it up front and then using that as a thread throughout a camp or throughout a tournament, mm. just connecting people back into it. You know, what are they there to do? And making sure that everyone's really clear on their individual part they, they're wanting to play in that. So that had the massive benefit of uniting the team together, mm. but also just giving them that direction, that motivation to head towards. How did you come up with it? Yeah, so I, I basically just facilitated a session where they came up with it themselves. Yeah. Um, so, you know, again, it, it wasn't going to be me saying, look, I think this is what we're here for. It was me going, what do you think we're all here for? Mm. And then clearly there were sort of leaders within a team that would be more vocal. But again, we'd already spoken 
as a group about everyone's voice being heard um, and, the, and they were amazing at, at making sure that happened so yeah just spent a bit of time crafting it themselves and if I thought they were going off track a little bit I'd steer them back on track but essentially me just helping to facilitate that conversation and then I think the, the probably the most important bit of my role in that was um, making sure that it was embedded and lived throughout mm. um, afterwards so it wasn't just a conversation we once had or, or you know words on a page but it was actually lived in that environment um, and just including little nudges and, and carrying on the conversation basically to make sure that happened. Mm. We did a little bit of work as well with the, with the players around the sort of chimp mindset, if you like, and thinking about them at their best, them at their worst, mm-hmm. um, and how they could be at their best more often, both from an individual perspective and a team perspective. And that seemed to really help as well. And um, again, something that we did once quite early on and then made sure was sort of in, li- lived throughout the, the season. And then with the staff, loads of little bits I, I helped with, but I suppose one of the main ones was just making sure everyone was super clear on on their roles and responsibilities. Mm-hmm. Particularly when you go away, you know, in a camp environment, things are a bit different. It's a different country, maybe different language, and particularly getting clear on that so that when you then come to a high pressure tournament, people just know people know where they fit in, people know their roles, and making sure that the communication was as open as possible within that. So that was sort of, I guess, some of the main uh, main bits of activity that I did that made made the biggest difference, I think. It's interesting that you mentioned even before coming up with a set of values or a, a why, that common thread, you'd already done a piece of work on how to listen to each other. Am I getting that right? How to turn-taking in conversations and respecting other people's opinions. Did I get that down right? Yeah, 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 exactly. So one of the first things I did was around... Like personality preferences um, and okay. how yeah. you know, just as simple as introversion, extroversion, and helping them to understand that, particularly in a camp camp team environment, if you're an introvert, you might want to spend a bit of time by yourself, and that's not because you're rude or you're, you're antisocial. It's just because you just need a bit of time to recharge. And equally, if you're more extroverted and you just say things before you sort of think them through, and just thinking about all the the ways that people operate and the impact that has on the team and on how you communicate at a super basic level but that that definitely helped as well so yeah I think that almost like I said um, at the start of a workshop I'll do a bit of contracting at the start of a season I think having that conversation is is very useful. But I think that's super interesting the ordering of how you've you've done that because quite often you know if I've seen people present to me within my world on these are the different things that we can do on high-performing teams or um, to get teams to work together quite often you see you know the powerpoint chart of lots of blobs and here are the different things we can do like a kind of a menu of different things but it never tells you the kind of the order of where they should go mm. and what's interesting here is you know that seems like a kind of a bit of a keystone or a pillar an underpinning element of getting people to understand different communication preferences or personality styles they were building that empathy with with one another so that you can then start to do more complex stuff which might be to come up with a why or a purpose or or one or find out how maybe that might be embedded so i mean is that something that you 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 found the kind of the ordering of of that seems to to be quite helpful within not just sport but business as well yeah for sure i think you've got to set set the foundation um and if anything you know that that can take the most time um Mm. so i I mentioned self-awareness earlier i think it's kind of got to start with that so how am i um how do i operate and then 
thinking about that in the the team environment yeah the the channels of communication how we operate what we say what we don't say how we act how we behave I think just raising awareness around that before you can then go into any meaningful meaningful conversations I I think is important Mm. the other the other thing I suppose I'm, I'm interested in is this idea around having a communal understanding or agreement on our why or our purpose and the reason why I'm interested in it is because and you might have seen this author in the private sector that um, Simon Sinek mm. um, who has a book called Start With Why and he's got a very famous YouTube video um, I think called The Golden Circle around mm. kind of starting with why and he uses Apple as an example and I, I, I know as a, an author if you go online there's you know there's some kind of pros and cons you you can you can say in terms of people um, looking at that model or looking at, at him as a kind of a an, an author, but but what I found is that that starting with that that why that why what how kind of uh, onion mm. um, within the private sector, people really latch onto it, and I, I don't really know why. I don't know whether it's because it's of its simplicity, its ability to take a quite complex situation and boil it down to some really key tenets or whether it's because there's something within us that is always searching for meaning and mm-hmm. searching for why. And, and maybe there's maybe some, there's some nice link there to acceptance, commitment therapy mm-hmm. and meaning and values and, and that type of thing. Is, yeah. is, you know, have you got any kind of reflections on, on why something like that seems to be powerful for people? Yeah, it is interesting. And certainly over this period of, of change for me, it has, it has for sure made me think like, what am I doing? What am I about? Why do I want to do this? And when you don't have that, I'm sure we've all been through a period in our lives where we're not quite sure what direction we're heading in. And you just feel that sense of, I don't know, panic or loss or frustration or whatever it is that you feel as an individual. But yeah, I think, and it, it also made me think of um, Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning book, um, mm. which again, is just, it's just, you know, a really fantastic way of thinking about we are all here and meaning is such an important part of life and I think probably the reason why people do value it so much is because it's just such a fundamental driver of of human beings to 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 need that purpose to have that purpose Mm. and if you're in a team the sort of fills that second need of of belonging um so you've got purpose in a group where you belong um i think those two things combined are yeah enormously powerful so i also think it's something that in our worlds we we talk about it a lot but a lot of people don't and yeah it always surprises me how how that conversation hasn't happened before and how it can just you know a simple conversation can really unite people not only as a team but as an individual to to drive forward and and give them direction Mm. Um, so yeah i think it's hugely powerful yeah it's interesting so you've got there's two key threads there there's a on an individual level that kind of fundamental driver of of meaning great great reference as well man search for meaning i hadn't hadn't thought of that but obviously that's a key key theme that comes through through there and this kind of work around logotherapy etc um and the second in this context is is building that that belongingness i suppose and uh, you, you can you can then start to use words around the kind of sports psychology literature like kind of team coherence and cohesiveness and yeah. uh, ability to or desire to work on behalf of the team etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah um, so that's quite interesting and actually i think it's um a, a sort of common thread between every environment i've worked in is that some people have a direction I think whatever whatever context, sport, 
business life, um, that direction provides so much. Mm. The trickiness in doing something like this, I suppose, is how often you might need to do it, particularly in sport, but also in some businesses where you have a high level of turnover. And I'm thinking maybe kind of businesses that um, have a lot of sales staff, Mm. potentially or, or kind of recruitment businesses where there's a high turnover of, of maybe kind of re- recruiters that come into the business same with some sports right you know you've mm. got high high changeover in, in players being transferred to other clubs or maybe even the management or coaches leaving and and if they they were the ones that that instilled some of these values or direction then you've got you know someone else coming in so yeah I suppose that's um that's just a kind of a, a common common challenge, I suppose. Working in this this industry is um, sometimes these things need to be redone or mm. or remade or refreshed. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think um, actually, like one of my goals, if if whenever I do this work, is that it becomes lived. So mm-hmm. people that come into that environment, they see it and they feel it and they hear it, and the you know the actual formal um, articulation of it kind of backs up what they've already felt and experienced um Mm. so again goes back to the people taking responsibility to to live it and it not just be something that's written down or talked about i think that's one of the most powerful ways of it being passed on um, even when personnel change Mm. i know damien hughes um in in some of his books is, is referred to stuff like this as cultural artifacts Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the culture be kind of kind of fragmenting and and could be become a a statue outside the stadium, or it could be yeah. a set of values outside the the changing room, or it might be just something that players do before a game. Like it, I know the Liverpool players tap that welcome to Anfield sign before they mm-hmm. before they head down onto the pitch. So it's those. I think what what I'm hearing there is those things can live on even if you've done the work five years ago some of those things can live live on even if the management changes even if the playing staff changes etc yeah yeah yeah. nice that's a good example um this is something that we we talked about maybe talking about uh, previously which is uh, the kind of the interaction between performance and well-being mm-hmm. which it, it seems to be something that everyone who who comes on the podcast tends to talk about at some stage this this interaction um, between both Historically, mm. within our our literature, there were people that sit on either side of that debate, and and many in the middle. Where where are you kind of sitting at the moment? Where where is your head at in terms of how yeah. the, these things inform each other? Oh, it's a really good question, and I think it's definitely shifted as I've as I've gone on. I suppose um, I think I came into the to the profession wanting to help people get better at their sport. Mm. Um, and you know all the benefits that come with that and I think I've definitely shifted more towards people first person first and then performer second Mm. um but I think they're so intertwined you you clearly can't have well I don't think you can have high performance without high level of of well-being Mm. um but equally I think you know performing at your best helps you to feel at your best Mm. so I think they definitely are intertwined I'd I'd probably sit somewhere in the middle but shifting ever more towards um, well-being yeah it's interesting that isn't it the the idea that doing something really 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 hard and and challenging and and pushing you right to the limits of your your tolerance physically or, or psychologically may result in high performance which may res- may result in high well-being and that also by the way 
uh, am aware that there are some really public uh, exceptions to that where actually pushing mm. yourself has, has not resulted in that. Yeah, it's definitely, definitely a fine line. Yeah, yeah. But I suppose that that's where the kind of the awareness around the the interaction happens, right? That that actually it's 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 not about the the carrot, it's not about hmm. the stick. There's the, there's got to be a, a kind of a mixture of of all these things. I know Mustafa Saka talks about high support, yeah. high challenge environments. They're pushing people really hard, but actually supporting them along the way is is that something that resonates? Yeah, for sure, definitely. And and it's actually one of the things I've got written down. I made a few notes before I came on. Um, a kind of yeah, common thread, I guess, between all different environments is is definitely a culture of high support and high challenge. And I think yeah, that's it's down to the sort of the coaches and the people who set that environment to to make sure that happens. It actually makes me think of I was reading the other day about a kind of Chinese culture of of mastery and mm-hmm. how parental how people parent in in China is get your child to a level of mastery because when they've mastered something their self-esteem rises you know they feel much more satisfied they clearly have gained new skills and and new abilities and I think yeah you know getting coaches or leaders or you know people people setting a tone of an environment getting people to a place where they can learn and grow and develop and master things is massively helpful for performance but also for all the, all the psychological benefits that come with it but yeah it's just that that balancing factor of of how you do that and make making sure that person as a whole person rather than just as that sports person is considered um and i think of course the other challenge is that everyone's different <laughs> so everyone's level of of pressure that they that they can put themselves under and that they thrive under is very different so um, you know, for athletes understanding that for themselves, but also for for the coaches and support staff to start to recognise that in in their, in their people. Mm. I suppose that that goes back to your your point before about wanting to put lots of energy and time into that contracting stage or that that stage upfront with a team or an individual where you really understand the context, so then you kind of can know what the appropriate support and challenge is. Yeah, yeah, and, and I don't know. One of the things I've definitely realised in in sport and team sport in particular is the sort of lack of time. So um, mm. we've got technical, tactical, physical, psychological. You know, there's so much focus placed on you know, physical fitness, getting the tactics right, developing skills. Mm. You know, the where do you where do you fit all this in? Because <laughs> there, there's not much time. Um, so yeah, be, being able to I don't know influence people that around its importance but also to do it in in a concise way that's that's valuable that's that's always a challenge as well yeah that's really interesting a friend of mine who who played quite a high level of of tennis and and he he told me that he was always open to new things if he could integrate it with current things Mm. so a good example might be you know you have to drive to training in the morning if something was delivered in podcast form he could listen to that in the car yeah and then it's it's like you say it's not taking any time away Mm, yeah exactly it's a good point okay well we've just talked about how difficult it is to summarize or to to sum up what to do um, in any given environment because of all of these variations therefore this question becomes extra unfair (laughs) um, to ask as we mentioned before it's really interesting to see how different practitioners different experts come at this question from from different angles so Jennifer, for you, what does a psychologically informed environment look like? What does it mean to you? 
Yeah, I mean, I think quite quite a bit of the stuff we've actually probably spoken about. I suppose if I were to summarise it, I think I've got four key things I'd probably say. So first of all, that it's an open and transparent environment where people communicate openly. It's underpinned by trust. It's underpinned by honesty. People are able to say what they really think, but they do it in a way that's received well. And equally, people know how to receive feedback criticism whatever it is um, and take mm. it forward to to help themselves and others grow so i think that open and transparent culture is, is key i think the second thing is that people have the tools to help themselves and, and take that personal responsibility to mm. develop themselves to develop others it's not it's not one person running the show or saving the day but it's each and every person playing their part in that mm. i think the Third thing I'd probably say is that it, it's values driven. So people know what it is that's important. Mm. That everything they do is aligned with that. So the decisions that they make, the actions that they take are aligned with what they or the group think are important. Mm. And I think the final thing that we've, we've definitely spoken about, but it's, it's that people are considered as whole people. You know, they're not just a they're not just an athlete they're not just a business person they're not just you know one part of them but they're they're kind of their whole self is considered and I think people thrive much better when when that's the case so yeah that's that's probably the the key things I would say I love it I hope that was summarized all right <laughs> it was another uh, what did we say at the start it wasn't a hitchhike it was a whistle stop yeah a whistle stop tour of the of the pie <laughs> I really like it. For so four key things: an open, transparent environment where there's trust, there's honesty. People know how to give and receive information. And there's that kind of em- empathy yeah. strand there, I suppose. But that, but that the individuals also have the tools to help themselves, so that they can take personal responsibility to, f- to develop themselves, not just relying on on others to tell them what to do or, or key leaders to to run the show on their own. Mm-hmm values driven so going back to the kind of the meaning conversation that we had before and and person-centered so it's not just about the performer or the athlete or dare I say in in the sporting world now unfortunately the word asset is is Mm. used quite a lot which is you know might be a business reality but on a on a personal level I'm I'm not sure there's there's many people who would ever like to be referred to as an asset so some really I, I love the pillars so so thank you for that no worries <laughs> right so thanks again jennifer for sharing your your insight and your experience across your journey uh so far there's so much there to to take away so really appreciate you you taking the time to come on for those that want to keep up with what these projects are coming on down the road in the next chapter of your journey where can people keep up to date with you where can they find you on the internet yeah, good question. I'm just I'm just starting to improve my uh, social media communications, which haven't been very good in the past. <laughs> so I'm on Twitter, Jenna Wolven, Instagram as well, Jay Wolven, or and my website's mindmattersconsulting.co.uk. So uh, I'm aiming to keep that quite up to date as well. Great. And I noticed there's a um, is there kind of an eight part online series of workshops that are, that are being released? Did I get that right? 
Yeah, so um, one of the projects I'm, I'm working on is a little um, a little venture called Yellowtail. Um, so yellowtailgroup.co.uk is, is the website, and I'm working with another sports psychologist to run a series of eight um, workshops, starting with let's bounce back from lockdown um, and get back into our sports, but then um, starting to explore some different psychological tools and techniques that athletes can use based around acceptance and commitment therapy, but making it kind of really applicable to, to athletes. I think it's it's a good opportunity we you know we spend so much time physically training and, and this is a good opportunity to practice and learn some, about some of the psychology stuff from from your own home so yeah that's another that's another one that's starting um in September great stuff and like, like we've we've talked about right throughout this this whole episode different personalities with different preferences are going to want to come into to new things in different ways and if that means someone wants to to dip their turn sports psychology through a kind of an, an online and content driven way, then that great. That's a, yeah. another, another person that might have, have not come into the, into the world of sports psychology. So that, that's great that you're doing that. So I will we'll post the links to all of those things in the podcast description. So people can have a look at that. Awesome. Um, so all that's left to say is thank you once again uh, for coming on. Yeah. Best of luck with the next chapter in the journey. Perfect. Thanks very much for having me. If you are still listening, thanks again for sharing another slice of pie with me. There was so much I took from this conversation, but a couple of key themes stood out that I thought were worth reflecting on. The first was a recurring theme that has come up a few times on the podcast, which is around dealing with negative thoughts and specifically an acceptance that negative thoughts can and will afflict us from time to time. Jenna mentioned, it's not about telling myself I shouldn't be having those thoughts, and it's very natural to have all the kinds of negative and catastrophic thoughts. Then it's just about choosing to worry about that or choosing to focus my attention on something else. The thoughts themselves aren't the problem, but it's how we react to them. Now, I've certainly benefited from this perspective personally. I think there was a point early on in my psychology journey where every negative thought was an internal battleground, chastising myself for thinking negatively and wrestling my internal dialogue into a more positive frame. However, I found doing this constantly hugely exhausting, and I think recognising that negative thoughts are a natural threat-seeking aspect of the human condition means that as Jenna articulated beautifully, one doesn't have to chastise oneself for having them. The more important factor, as Jenna also mentions in the episode, is building the self-awareness to see such patterns when they occur, and then instead of fighting or chastising oneself for the thoughts, choosing actually how I want to react. Incidentally, I find popping the kettle on is often a great way forward. The second theme I found interesting was Jenna's experience of going into run workshops in organisations and giving a refreshing outsider perspective. She mentions that people are really interested in high performing environments and that if they could take one or two things away, that could be really powerful and a great outcome. She also reports that coming from a different world was quite interesting to those involved in the workshops. This inverted commas outsider perspective links in really nicely with some of the other Slice of Pie episodes that touch on social identity theory, particularly the episode with Matt Slater and Chris Hartley, where we talk about how you are perceived as an in-group or out-group member can explain how accepted you are and how effective you are in different social groups. 
And in Jenna's experience, being positioned as a non-threatening outsider, bringing in inspiration from high-performance sport, has resulted in some really positive experiences in certain businesses. And this also reminds me of the episode that I did with Chris Souter, the Tennis Scotland and Judy Murray Foundation coach and performance tutor, who said he had a really positive experience taking his learning from high-performance sport into the oil and gas industry of all places. So some really interesting themes to reflect on there from Jenna. There's lots of great guests coming up later in the season looking at topics such as psychology in esports, high performance in the performing arts, and also acceptance commitment therapy. So stay tuned for those. That's it from me. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, have a good one.